0: Welcome to the Ecology Hour. I am your host, Chad Swimmer. Today on the Eco Hour, I feel very lucky to be speaking with Dr. Stephen Sillett, an American botanist specializing in tall forest canopies. He was one of the first scientists to explore the redwood forest canopy, pioneering new methods for studying tall trees. Sillet has intensively measured many of the tallest individuals of several tree species to quantify their above-ground attributes. A full and updated list of his publications can be found by searching for Google. Scholar Sillett, S-I-L-L-E-T-T. Professor Sillett currently occupies the Kenneth L. Fisher Chair in Roadwood Forest Ecology at Cal Poly Humboldt. He is featured in Richard Preston's New York Times bestseller, The Wild Trees, as well as in scientific journals, general interest magazines, and nature television programs. Sillet is one of the tree climbers featured in the 2012 National Geographic image of the president tree, the giant 3,200-year-old sequoia. If you have not seen this image, I highly recommend it. It is 126 photos put together to make a composite of one massive tree in the snow. I'm very lucky to have Professor Stephen Sillit on with me. So you and your wife, Marie Antoine, wrote an article a few years ago called Intentional Forests, Hope for the Future. This article blew my mind. I've been working with plants and gardening and working for forest health on a small scale for 40 years. And it just opened up rooms that I had no idea existed. Can you talk about how this article came about?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, when the pandemic hit, and there was lockdown and everything, I took the opportunity to try to synthesize everything that we'd learned about the four tallest conifer species. So Coast redwood, Giant Sequoia, Douglas Fir, and Sitka Spruce in a comparative framework. So everything that we we had learned from years of climbing and studying some of the tallest individuals known for these species plus a bunch of others. So in the end, it was a pretty major synthesis and I, I really put a lot of energy into it over several months. And it was published in a scientific journal, Forest Ecology and Management, as most of my articles are. And there were crickets chirping. I mean, There's very little like, feedback or anything. And I was pretty bummed out because I thought it was my best yet. And so I was really kind of moping around and Marie saw that. And, and uh, you know, she's a, a co-author on the article. And she decided that she was going to try to write kind of a translation of it one that would be accessible to folks who don't get bogged down with scientific terminology. And so she wrote this article and then we tried to publish it and had almost no luck. I mean, we we tried and tried, nobody wanted it. And so it was just really demoralizing. But in the end, we decided to publish it with a group called the International Dendrology Society. We're life members of that of that organization, basically tree lovers. And we've traveled on several of their tours and have have some very good friends around the world who are involved in that group, the IDS. And they have a yearbook, which is a pretty well um, published piece. I mean, it's it's got some really nice articles in it and all kinds of great information for people who love trees. So we published a piece in there on intentional forests. And in that article, we tried to kind of explain what we'd learned about these four tall species and put it in a context and also help explain why we think it matters for society And the concept of intentional forest is, it's not necessarily a new concept, but it's a twist on on a concept where instead of focusing on the forest as a whole, the management is designed to consider the individual trees and their structural development. Mm -hmm. Because what we've learned in, in the primary forests, the old growth forests of these species, is that a relatively small number of trees do the bulk of the work in terms of biodiversity provisioning and habitat in the crown, but also um, carbon sequestration and productivity. The big trees do the most work. So even in the, some of the most spectacular rainforests up here in Humboldt and Del Norte County, there's only a few trees per acre that really carry the bulk of the canopy biodiversity load. And these trees are in very short supply. So even in the finest forests, they're not very numerous. So when you look at the landscape that we've created, there are pretty much none of these trees left outside of the parks and reserves. There are scattered, what we call veteran trees, survivors of logging, some of which are very impressive, um, but they're super rare. And the vast majority of our landscape is covered with short, simple regenerating forests where there isn't really any provision for the restoration of any giants whatsoever. The, economic priority of forest management has pretty much excluded the possibility of creating these trees of the future that could become elder trees, that could harbor this incredible load of biodiversity and become their full stature. And so what we were proposing is a way of thinking about forests differently so that you actually see the forest for the trees. So that's Mm -hmm. what we said by intentional forestry. And we go go into it quite a bit in that article. Um, But i'm I'm pursuing these same concepts now in some of my current work.
0: Thank you. And I would like to tell listeners that we're going to have a link to that article in our show notes. And at the end of the show, I'll tell you how to access that. So, as I understand it, your intentional forests focus on a number of things, but two really important things are forest carbon and biodiversity. At for the theory to make sense to many of our listeners, it'd be helpful. Could you give us a Cliff's Notes primer on forest carbon? Or why are sequoias, evergreens, coast redwoods the world champion at carbon sequestration? I, I guess what we're talking about here
1: are non- timber values. Timber values basically is wood production and these are commodity extraction from the forest ecosystem, which is mm-hmm. necessary for society. But there's more to a forest than supplying timber. And we know that when you liquidate a primary forest and you replace it with regenerating or plantation forestry, you've lost a great deal of structural complexity, biomass, and biodiversity. So with respect to Coast Redwood, you know, here's a species that lives in relatively low elevation forests. I mean, it spans a pretty wide range, like six degrees of latitude, all the way from the rainforest up in extreme southwestern Oregon, all the way down into the Big Sur but there's, and so there's a huge gradient within the species. But one thing that it has in common is it's very good at protecting its heartwood from fungal decay. So it, the reason it has the name Redwood is because the toxins that are deposited in the heartwood as it forms beneath the sapwood are stained with these polyphenols that give this heartwood its color and its incredible durability. So there's very few species of fungi that can decay redwood heartwood. Hmm. And there are, there are a few specialized fungi that do it, but they tend to form small pocket rots. And so they're not, it's not an extensive decay that leads to structural collapse. And so what you have is a tree that grows in a rainforest environment that has incredibly durable wood. And in addition to the heartwood durability, it also has thick bark, that is resin free. So when it does burn, it doesn't burn in a way that boils the cambium or the living tissue beneath the bark. The wood Mm -hmm. is well protected by the bark. Consider like another species of tree like Douglas fir, which also becomes quite tall, but only lives, you know, less than half as long as a coast redwood. When it burns, there's resin in the bark and that bark, that resin ignites, and the bark becomes very hot, and it boils the cambium. So there's been many situations recently where redwood and Douglas fir co-occur in the forest, like, for example, at Big Basin. And that was a hot fire. came through the canopy, and it didn't burn through the understory very intensely, but it moved through the canopy very quickly. And just about all the Douglas firs were killed. And the, the redwoods, they lost their crowns, but they survived. And so partly the the incredible durability of redwood is its fire resistance. The other thing that it does is it, it has uh, shade tolerance. So it's capable of regenerating beneath itself in a forest. Douglas fir can't do that. So it's able to perpetuate itself even with their, without a stand replacing disturbance. Hmm. And one more feature of it is just amazing is it's prolific ability to produce trunk reiterations or sprouts. So it's basically clonal. It doesn't require sexual reproduction. It doesn't need to produce seeds to reproduce. It basically just sprouts from its roots or from a stump or from a broken top. It's incredibly vigorous when it comes to recovery from either fire or windstorm. Even if they blow over, sometimes they still survive. They just sprout off of the root ball. Yeah. So these, this, this durability gives, gives redwood longevity. And, you know, we've measured individual trees in Redwood National Park, for example, that are 2,300 years old. So if you can live that long and you become the tallest trees in the world, you acquire not only great size, but great structural complexity. And so what these trees do, particularly in the rainforest of Humboldt and Norte County, is that they become highly reiterated, which means the crowns become filled with vertical trunks that have crotches at the base where debris and soil can accumulate. They also have this remarkable ability to sprout trunks from damaged branches. And then those branches become transformed into what we call limbs. So when you look at the diameter of horizontal appendages, say on a tree, the largest ones are limbs. So limbs in a redwood can become six feet diameter branches can never become more than one or two feet diameter. Mm -hmm. So that process of reiteration, the, the branch becomes a limb and then the limb supports a trunk and the trunk has its own branches and all that mass is being held up by this limb. So they become very thick. And that horizontal surface is what allows leaf litter and duff to accumulate. And eventually you get colonized by epiphytic mosses and ferns. And there's one fern in particular, polypodium schuleri or the leather leaf fern, that can build up and form these massive soil mats, like a meter thick, three foot thick soil mass on top of a branch or a limb. And then those things hold enormous quantities of water. So we've measured in individual trees, individual fern mats that can store a thousand liters of water, one fern mat. And that water is held against gravity in the soil that builds up on the limb. And that of course creates habitat for all kinds of critters. So you have arboreal salamanders, you have worms, you have crustaceans, you have all kinds of critters that live in that arboreal soil. And so these these things are completely absent from secondary forests. There's just none of it. And if you don't allow the trees in our cutover landscape to ever achieve great size again, then these phenomena are lost from the entire landscape. So with intentional forestry, we're proposing that we designate some trees in our, in our managed forest that can have the potential to become elder trees. And these would be trees that would be allowed to live out their full life cycle and become elder trees and therefore support
0: some of these non-timber values. There are many directions to go with this right now, but I'm, I wanna to jump to your proposal for potential elder trees. And it seems to be like the, the centerpiece of an intentional forest. So how would this be different than just say a wildlife tree?
1: Well, yeah, there's an interesting there's a lot of terms that are kind of applied to trees that are kind of residual or remnant trees that are left. They're trees that were too damaged either by some disturbance or by the logging itself that they weren't they didn't have a lot of value. And so they can be left and they also provide incredibly important habitats. But potential elder trees are different. These are trees that aren't damaged, that aren't kind of decadent, if you will. They are <laughs> they have enormous crowns that stand out from their compatriots in having really well-developed crowns, the thing that's in short supply in forests are big appendages with horizontal surfaces that can accumulate epiphytes. So by designating a tree as a potential elder, it's a tree that seems to have the capacity to, in, in the fullness of time, develop a crown of great size and structural complexity. When you have a young forest many stems per acre. The trees are very simple in structure, very kind of Christmas tree style, very pointy tops. It's impossible to recognize which of those many, many, many trees is going to eventually become a forest giant if we were to allow it to. So you can't designate them until the forest has gone through some development already. And it turns out that in California, the rarest forest type in the redwood region are mature secondary forests. These are forests that were logged initially in the late 1800s and the very early 1900s, and then now have trees 100 to 170 years old. They're extremely rare on the landscape. But when you have these trees that are reaching that size, you can, you can tell which ones are standouts. You have your hand raised.
0: It's One sec, Steve. I just wanted to reiterate for people that this is really an important point that probably about 5% of uh, original primary forest, forests, original old growth forests are left, but less than 2% of one time logged second growth are left and this is it has a lot of ramifications. But anyway, go on Stephen.
1: Well, yeah, and pick, piggybacking on that, I mean, you figure okay that we 95 to 96% of the original redwood forests were were felled. They came back quickly from stump sprouts. They're really amazing and regenerating. We all know that about redwood. They are incredible at regeneration because they already have an established root system. And then they they come rocketing back. I mean, I've seen secondary forests with trees over 80 meters tall, 260 feet tall in, in, in 100 years. So it's just an incredible species in that regard. But what happened is they were, of course, high value. Some of these mature secondary forests have wood that's extremely valuable. And so nearly all of them were cut again when they became merchantable. So the repeated logging of secondary forests precludes the development of elder trees because we're not allowing any trees to reach full stature. You know, you have a species that can live for thousands of years, and what's your rotation age? 50 to 100 years, You're, you're dealing with juveniles. So we have a landscape covered with juvenile trees. There's nothing wrong with juvenile trees but they don't have the habitat characteristics. They don't have these non-timber values that the giants do. And so what I'm proposing is once we get to the forest to be a reasonable size and, you know, generally as it approaches about 200 feet in height, you can start to see among the regenerating trees standout individuals. They're not necessarily the trees with the biggest trunks. They often are, but not always. What you look for in a potential elder tree is a crown of great size that has big branches. And you can see these. I, I can recognize them instantly. It's like, oh, there's a pet right there. And there's a lot of them. Like in Arcana Community Forest, is full of them. And in Jackson, there's a bunch of them. And so the, the challenge is to designate these trees that have the potential to become elders and then favor them through repeated management. Now, there's you could, of course, just in one extreme, the forest is logged once and then it's allowed to to never be logged again and become primary forest again in the fullness of time. But in in the other extreme, there might be a few of these trees that are designated per acre that would be allowed to reach their full stature and become giants again. And the thing about them is not only are they going to be storing a lot of carbon, durable carbon in decay resistant heartwood, but they're also going to be providing canopy habitats that are not replicated anywhere else in the landscape. And- these big branches and, and structurally complex crowns are achieved in trees who have gotten their crowns slightly above their neighbors, and then they can expand in the fullness of sun. And so they have enormous amount of resources per tree, and they're the ones that kind of command the growing space, if you will, and they become the trees that I would recognize as pets.
0: You are listening to The Ecology Hour. I am Chad Swimmer, and I'm speaking with Professor Stephen Sillett. Renowned American botanist specializing in tall trees and arboreal ecosystem. We are speaking about intentional forests. So this is also growing into a forest management designation. And you came down last year and gave us a lot of, of information about what you saw in Jackson. And CAL FIRE kind of adopted this concept of PET, the pet tree, I'm wondering if you have kind of a brief, concise list of objective criteria for identifying such a tree. Ah, That's a great question.
1: But one, one thing first, never say pet tree. <laughs> That's like saying ATM machine, right? It's potential elder tree. Thank you. Um, okay. Um, Cal Fire really liked the concept um, because it, it does achieve some of these non-timber value objectives. And so they ran with it before we'd really developed the objective criteria for their designation. You know, I can go into a stand and recognize them and people can be trained to do so. But what we need to do is develop clear and objective criteria for designating trees that have the potential to become elder trees. And uh, we're going to be working on that, actually. And I think it can be done with um, remote sensing like aerial LIDAR, airborne LIDAR, to find trees that have, that are not only tall for that particular neighborhood, but also have very big crowns.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but that's the main thing. It's, it's what they do in the, in the crown. You know, forests have canopies, trees have crowns. So pets are those that have really big crowns that have a lot of potential to become gnarly. And what we need is gnarl. We need trees that have not just simple branches, but that have developed limbs, And to have reiterations and that you can have platforms for soil accumulation and bird nesting and so on. So those criteria have yet to be actually established, but we're working on a project starting this year to do
0: just that. I look forward to hearing what you develop. Can we go back to carbon for a moment? And you've, you've said durable carbon. I'm curious and I did not totally, I did not understand this and I still don't totally understand what is the difference between durable carbon and, say, everyday carbon, forest carbon? And then along the same lines, how is a high biomass forest not necessarily one that has a lot of durable carbon? If you want to talk about
1: carbon sequestration in the broad sense, the fastest way to pull carbon out of the atmosphere is with irrigated, fertilized plantations. In fact, the most biomass production and about half of biomass is carbon, so they're similar in, in content. Um, it would be from sugarcane,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or sorghum, or corn. You can produce more biomass per hectare per year in a in a crop than in, than can be produced in a forest. But think about the fate of that biomass in the years to come. How long will it will that carbon that's been sequestered in that biomass last? So by durable carbon, I mean carbon that is locked away in, in a tissue that isn't going to degrade. And so I was talking earlier about heartwood, the red-colored central wood of a redwood tree. That has durability because it's very difficult for fungi to decompose it. It's protected from these toxins, these red toxins. And By the way, those toxins add about 5 to 25% of the mass of the wood. There's that much gunk deposited in the wood during its formation. And the amount of gunk, which is the red material, actually varies dramatically as you move up the trunk. As you get higher and higher in the tree, there's more and more of that deposited. So the most decay resistant wood is produced in the upper trunk, not near the ground. And the other thing we've found is that young redwoods, the heartwood that they make has a lot less of that gunk in it. So A plantation redwood, particularly in the northern part of the range, they have heartwood, but it's not invested with nearly as much toxin on a per-unit volume or per-unit mass basis. So it's not very decay-resistant. They've done these experiments where they take chunks of heartwood or sapwood or bark or whatever tissue they're looking at, and they put it in a soil block. They measure it the mass before, and then they measure the mass later, and they see how much mass loss over time. And the heartwood from primary forests decomposes – two to three times more slowly than the heartwood in a young tree. Mm -hmm. So all wood is not created equal. And the thing is, as trees gain size, as they enlarge with age, they get taller, more and more of the wood that they produce is decay resistant heartwood. Mm -hmm. So by the time, like in a young tree on an annual basis, let's say it makes a cubic meter of wood. Um, actually that's ridiculously high for a young tree. Let's just say, uh, half of the wood that it makes annually would be heartwood. In an old tree, a big tree, it could be more than 80%. So not only does the old tree make a greater proportion of its wood as heartwood, but that heartwood is better protected from fungal decay than in a young tree. Mm-hmm. So we are, we're trying to, the thing with the pets is that they, they not only are going to provide the habitat, but the longer they live, the better a carbon sink they become if that makes sense.
0: Yes, yes. Within my reading of your intentional forest article, in respect to carbon, you've encouraged us to um, loosen our dogma on native species. And you've shown how these four conifers have been planted around the world and they've done really well. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, you know, the redwoods used
1: to extend all across the Northern Hemisphere. They were widely distributed in Europe and eastern North America. Um, then the glacial cycles came and knocked them back. And so they're now in very restricted distribution. But it's not beyond the realm of natural to imagine redwood forests more widely distributed. And in fact, at least in the northern hemisphere, in fact, if you go to Europe, some of the biggest trees in Europe are redwoods that were planted. Um, there's some gorgeous redwoods in Britain. I think the biggest tree in Europe right now is a, is in Spain. It's a giant sequoia that's over 14 feet diameter. Oh. The biggest planted tree on earth is a giant sequoia that we uh, measured in Frankton, New Zealand on the South Island. It's over 15 feet diameter. And it was planted in like the 1870s. This thing, and it's not a like a bell-bottom tree. It's, it's huge, big old crown. There's like a city park devoted to this tree. Wow. So they do really well. And the tallest trees in Europe are are Douglas firs and redwoods. And uh, in, in Scotland, sick of spruce is the tallest tree. So yeah, they, they do well planted where there's sufficient resources. I mean, these trees do need quite a bit of water. They're not gonna grow in a desert. So in appropriate um, locations, they can establish forests that are incredibly impressive in a relatively short time. There's a forest on the South Island of New Zealand that has trees that are, um, over 70 meters tall, coast redwoods. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they have value as planted trees. They're, they're, their non-timber values
0: are not diminished because they're a planted tree. hmm And that you've encouraged us all around the world to be thinking of any property that we're managing as something that we could be you know, increasing the biodiversity, but also increasing carbon sequestration, even if it's only an acre. Is this, uh, can you go on on that?
1: Well, you know, the thing with the carbon sequestration, the biggest trees produce the most biomass annually and are the best carbon sinks on an individual basis. But the thing is, in order to pick a dent out of the problem the atmospheric carbon burden from fossil fuel use, you need to have such enormous land areas converted to redwood forests that it's not really a feasible alternative. Nobody's going to want to have the entire landscape that's suitable for redwood covered with redwood again. So there's kind of a misnomer to think that Redwoods are going to be some big solution to climate change, but there's other values to solve the climate change problem. We're going to have to do a heck of a lot more than planting trees, Mm -hmm. but there's other values. Um, There's the durability of the biomass that they produce that allows them to create long lasting habitats. And then there's fire resilience. The bigger trees, particularly redwoods with the thick bark are the ones that are more likely to survive fire. So if you want a forest that's after a fire comes through that has any living trees at all,
0: Redwood's your best
1: bet, either species, really.
0: Mm -hmm. Speaking of biodiversity, that you are known for being one of the people who first, and I put it in quotes, discovered the hidden ecosystems in the canopy of primary and old growth forests. Can you talk about your earliest explorations in the lofty treetops?
1: Yeah, I was a student at Reed College. You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. So when I got out to um, Portland, Oregon, I started seeing all these awesome trees. Initially, I was interested in chemistry. Then I started climbing these trees and just became obsessed with it and uh, went down to visit Prairie Creek in the 1987. I found a tree I could kind of claw up the bark to get into the lower crown and got to the top. Oh, this is different. <laughs> Saw some things up there that blew my mind and kind of changed my life, actually. Every time I climbed up in, into the canopy, it was like something new. I'll never forget the first time I was up there and I found a salamander. It's like, what? There's was, there was new discovery. Just about every time I climbed one of these big trees back in the early days, it took years before I climbed a tree and didn't discover something I'd never seen before. So that was kind of cool. So it was that kind of early exploration stage. And then what we realized is there's so little known that we needed to map it. And so we started to do some very painstaking work, three-dimensional mapping, figure out well, how big are these trees? How big are the limbs? How many trunks do they have? What's the surface area? Who's living on it? How much biomass of fern is there? How much water do they hold? How many salamanders does the tree support? Do they jump from tree to tree? I mean, all kinds of things that we didn't know. Um, so yeah, it was, it was exciting. I'm very lucky to have been, I mean, the climbing technology was better. I mean, we didn't have to use spurs or spikes to climb into the trees because there's all kinds of great techniques that you can climb trees without really injuring the tree. And so that's, it was a kind of a coming together of several forces there and
0: just luck was a big part of it. Last year, when you were down here visiting, you told us about like a hundred feet up finding a cavity that uh, probably a raccoon had lived in. And, you know, speaking of tool use, it had lined, that lined its den with bay leaves. Yeah, yeah, I was blown away by
1: that. This was a fire cave that was over a hundred feet up on the side of it, monster redwood. And it was a place where some old reiterated trunk or limb had blown out, pulled out and the fire had burned a cavity out. And so like a human couldn't have fit in it. It could really, you maybe squeezed in it, but it would have been terrifying. But inside it opened up and there's a chamber in there and there were bay laurel. They actually cut branches, small sprigs of branches and lined the bottom of the, of this thing with with bay. And we didn't know what the hell would do that. You know, there wasn't a bay laurel right next to the tree either. So somebody intentionally carried branch, small branches up into this cavity. So long story short, we were at the top of the tree. This was when we were doing some nocturnal measurements of, of tree water potential, looking at how water stressed they were. So we had to camp out up there in hammocks to wake up before dawn to take these measurements. So we're up there and there's a raccoon crawling around. We, well, we didn't know it was a raccoon. We we're like, what the hell is that? You know, because we heard it scrabbling around we're like, oh, my God. So we ended up finding a little turd, and we we bagged it and then gave it to a lab. I think it was Montana, and they did a DNA analysis and turned out it was a raccoon. That's how we knew what it was. But it makes sense that you know Bay laurel has those ethereal oils in it to give it that scent, and you know maybe there's some knowledge in the raccoon family that you can cut down on the flea problem if you line your bed with Bay laurel. I don't know. I mean, it was just one observation.
0: It's amazing, though. Yeah. You are listening to the Ecology Hour. I am Chad Swimmer, and I'm speaking with Professor Stephen Sillett. We are speaking about intentional forests. I was talking to you, well, I emailed you a couple of weeks ago about the, uh, that I was struck with this concept and how you had looked into climbing into the canopy And helping to move the overstory ecosystem more quickly into a late seral state. And one of the things that you had considered is taking um, fern mats that had fallen to the ground in a storm and putting them back up into the canopy. Uh, You actually did a study on this. Can you talk about it?
1: Yeah, this is work that's ongoing. We've got a growing number of potential elder trees that have been designated in in, uh, a place called Van Eck Forest. And this is mature secondary forest. So the trees currently don't have any epiphytic ferns, just like any, any of these regenerating redwood forests. But there's, they're at the right stature now where some of the trees are kind of becoming differentiated. You can recognize the pet. And so we've designated uh, five. Last year, we got 10 more coming this year. So I got a permit from the state parks to after the winter storms collect off the trails, some fallen fern mats. Uh, and then kind of nurture them into these little units that we could then transplant. And so we've been transplanting this, and this is that leatherleaf fern polypodium schuleri, that's the main soil former in the redwood canopy. And we lash them to branches uh, in the upper crown of these pets. And we they've now been in the canopy for over a year and a half and they are thriving. They got new fronds, everything looks good. We've checked on them to make sure it worked. <laughs> So now that we know it works, we're going to be doing more of them. And this jump starts the process of canopy soil formation. Because if you wait for the natural development, you know, these ferns, I don't know if you're familiar with the fern life cycle, but they produce the underside of the frond. They have these little poofs where the spores are produced, these little microscopic spores. They float through the air. They have to germinate and grow into this tiny single cell thick gametophyte that's shaped like a little heart and it produces the eggs and the sperm in these things. And so they have, to, they have to stay moist and then the sperm have to swim through water to get to the egg. So it's preposterous. And you're in a crown of a tree, what are the opportunities that this is gonna happen? And so what happens as these trees get bigger, you get leaf litter that forms, you get little pockets of decomposing duff. And there could be like a little drip zone underneath it that's just moist enough to allow the spores to germinate produce the gametophyte, produce the sperm in the egg and to produce a little sporophyte which is, grows into the fern. That whole process is obviously something that is a bottleneck for these ferns because you do not see them in young forests. So if you put the intact fern mat and we're talking like, you know football size mats, just, just to get them started, then that's gonna, that, then you've overcome that bottleneck in the life cycle. Now you have an organism in the canopy that's creating a platform for nesting habitat, but also soil formation. And eventually they could become quite large. I mean, we've had individual trees that had several hundred kilos dry weight of ferns in them. So in the primary forest. So we're just getting, we're trying to jumpstart it. But the cool thing is these pets are now designated. They're on the inventory and they will never be cut. They're gonna manage around them. They're gonna try to keep these guys intact so they can go through their whole life cycle. And now they've got these ferns And they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the ferns can then start dispersing the spores through the canopy. So we're hoping it kind of accelerates this process whereby you get some of these old forest organisms in younger
0: forests. Yeah. Sounds like it should be a a three century study to see how far they get. I think they're going to go really far,
1: really fast because it's once you get over that hurdle, they, they can grow really well. Like I've had, fallen fern mats that I put in my yard and they, I watched them and they go, if they have right, the right light environment, they need quite a bit of light. We found that the transplants that we put kind of lower in the crown of these pets, they kind of languished. They like
0: the light. Yeah. Are there other ways we could speed up the development of late seral ecosystems in the canopy? We did an experiment um, several
1: years ago where we had 24 trees in mature secondary forests. So it was in six sets of four. And we did a factorial experiment where half of the trees, we took a top off and we cut the top off where it was maybe about 10 centimeters diameter. We didn't like completely top it, but we, we damaged the leader. We removed, carefully removed the leader. Mm-hmm. And then we did also some pruning around um, individual large branches to see if we could change their light environment to see if we could get them to produce reiterations on a subset of those branches. We also removed their tips with a pole prune and we kind of snipped them off. So we took the top off of some of the trees and took the tips off some of the branches. And we found that the combination of those two disturbances led to reiteration of new trunks and the formation of limbs. But if you just topped and didn't damage the branches, it didn't happen, uh. very little. And if you just damaged the branches and you didn't take the top off, it didn't happen. And this, this makes sense because it disrupted the hormonal gradients within the tree. There's this hormone called auxin that regulates whether the branches will produce trunks. And you disrupt that through damage. So imagine a tree going through a storm and top gets damaged. And then its branches get broken. And this happens over and over. And then eventually you get these trees that have the reiterations and structural complexity. So we wanted to see if you could do it in a way that wouldn't disrupt the health of the tree. Just kind of tweak it. So you're not like ripping the tree and really gashing it and making it, uh, exposing it to pathogens. You're just basically disrupting the hormonal balance. And it turned out it worked. Now, that's a long-term proposition, but that's another thing that could be done. The drawback of that approach is, of course, when you damage the tree, of course, you're shorting it. And then you could have a tree next to it that could become dominant over it. It's a tough one. Um, I just wanted to see if it was feasible to do. We proved it is feasible, but that's a lot of labor. Actually, do it over a larger scale. So, I think the more important thing at this point to do is find out which trees have the potential to become elders based on their crown structure. Designate them, manage around them, put them in favorable positions. Let these trees become giants. The thing is, um, there's also a potential positive effect of these pets and elder trees on regeneration because we know that trees share resources through their root systems. So we we have indirect evidence in old forests that these young redwoods that are growing in the understory, they're basically sprouts. They do a lot better than you'd expect based on, they grow a lot faster than you expect based on how many leaves they have. And so we had circumstantial evidence that there's quite a bit of below ground subsidy occurring. So if you have a managed scenario where you have pets designated, you allow them to become large crown trees They might have a positive effect on regeneration in areas of the forest where they're not shaded. So there's a possibility that there could be a positive effect on regeneration of these pets. That's something that would be very interesting to look at in a controlled way. So
0: in the, the carving out and the giving preference mechanically to these potential elder trees, I would be worried about the soil compaction of thinning and single tree selection management, can you speak to the effects of soil compaction on forest health?
1: Well, it's definitely not good. There's different ways to cut trees and remove them from a stand without necessarily having a tractor that goes in there and just tramples everything. Um, There's a lot of methods of removing trunks of trees that minimize compaction. And there's actually a whole group of people devoted to studying this. There's a guy named Hunter Harrell in my department who specializes in this. but yes, that's a huge problem. Uh, the below ground biology of these trees is poorly understood. But what we do know is if you trample the base of the tree and you have soil compaction, the tree is going to suffer. It'll survive probably, but it won't grow as quickly. Um, so, yeah, definitely if for these pets, we have to put them in positions on the landscape. If, if you're dealing with a, a working forest where you're going to have timber extraction, but you're also going to have pets, they have to be placed in locations where there's not gonna be chronic, repeated soil damage. So they can't just be randomly positioned. You'd have to actually look at the landscape. And this is the thing, forest managers can do this. They're experts at this. Figure out where the best places would be to put these. You know, and we have a lot of riparian reserves in places where we're not allowed to log because of the forest practice rules. So these pets can be kind of situated in in these positions as well. But it is an issue, and and we we don't have all the answers yet about this, but I think we just have to take a look at the landscape that we have today and say, is this good enough? And I say it's not, because it's embarrassing how short these forests are in this state. We have the tallest trees in the world, and look at this state. It's pathetically short everywhere, except for the parks and reserves. We can do better than this. Mm -hmm. And I think people are starting to see that we can do better than this. It's just a matter of figuring out what are our our goals and how much are we willing to invest in the retention of some of these trees. Are non-timber values important to us as a society? And if so,
0: let's get going with it. Mm -hmm. You've pretty much already answered this, but I'd like to put it out in, in a concise form. How would an intentional forest be different from just any other managed forest? The main thing is you would have individual trees designated as part of
1: the permanent inventory, whose location and health would become a management priority. You would have them so that the problem is we, we have such short lifespans, the trees don't. So, you know, this generation, we we go in and we, we let's say we select and we, we leave the best trees, we leave the larger trees, then the next generation comes in and they take some of those, but in the end, You're not left with any trees that are becoming truly large. Like maybe you have like a 40-inch diameter cutoff. You don't let any trees get above that. Mm. And that's what we got to get, get away from. We got to allow some of these trees to attain their full stature again. And the only way that's going to happen is if they become part of the permanent inventory. So when the timber harvest plans are made in the future, these trees are on the map. There's information about individual trees. The thing is, you can go out there with your iPhone now and know exactly where you are. There's no problem in locating ourselves because of all these GPS satellites. There's no reason at all why we can't have a tree without having some horrendous paint covering its lower trunk. Yes. I am sick of this paint. I mean, it's aesthetically offensive. So, why don't we have them just on a freaking inventory? So, you have your tablet or your iPhone or your map or whatever it is, you can sell which tree's which. And I, I think we can do this. It's just going to take some creative. Uh, rejiggering
0: of our management approach Mm -hmm. you are listening to the Ecology Hour I am Chad Swimmer and I'm speaking with Professor Stephen Sillett renowned American botanist specializing in tall trees and arboreal ecosystem we are speaking about intentional forests we've been talking this morning on a real scientific level but for me one aspect of the intentional forest concept that i really am drawn to is is that we are not so much managing as working with these creatures these beings that are so much older and greater than we are and i was struck when i was reading about you know the process of identifying a tree with the potential to become you know an elder an ancient It's almost like trying to identify the child who will become the Dalai Lama. Does this comparison resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. And like I was saying earlier,
1: when you have a forest that's young and densely stocked with small trees, you can't tell. You can only really tell after there's been a process of differentiation where the crown, some of the trees become dominant and others become subordinate. And you can see trees that have that upper crown development where they're kind of on their way. They've got the big crown, they've got the big branches. Um, Yeah, it's really difficult. And of course, we may not be right in our selections. They could blow down the next winter storm. So we have to have more pets designated than our target elder tree density is. We can't just have, let's say we want, we want to have one elder tree per acre. Okay, let's just say that's, that's the goal. You can't just have one pet per acre. Because how, what's the probability that that pet is actually going to survive all the storms between now and when it becomes an elder tree. So we have to designate more of these trees to allow for some of them to actually die and fall over. There is the reality of these storm systems and with climate change, they're becoming more and more intense. So yeah, we have to, the target population of elder trees needs to be established. And then we have to have a sufficient number of potential elder trees that can then move into that rank. And it's Mm -hmm. going to take some time. But the thing of it is, if you give a tree resources, if you don't have it hemmed in by neighbors that are almost as tall and shaded, you give it light, it's going to grow fast. And we can pamper these pets and they can get big fast. Like I was saying, we found a tree down in uh, the forest of Nicene Marks near Santa Cruz. The place was logged uh, 1895. There's this one little notch canyon and there's like 15 foot stumps in there. But coming off these stumps, there's these huge secondary redwoods and they are, we measured one 87 meters tall, that's 287 feet tall. And it was six feet diameter. Wow. And, and that's what, 120 years, 125 years. So we can, we can it, you, people would be surprised within a generation or two, we could have some decent trees back on the landscape. We need to start this now. And we need to think beyond our short lives to the future generations.
0: Mhm. So recently you had an article published in um Trees Foundation Forest River News and this was written by your wife with you or both of you together and it is about the effects of climate change on redwoods and one of the things well there's many aspects that interested me and I encourage people to to read this article but can you talk about it briefly?
1: Yeah, so we that is a, another of our attempts I mentioned my earlier attempt, Marie's earlier attempt to write the article on intentional forest based on my 2021 article on the four tallest conifers. We recently completed a range-wide analysis of sequoia sempervirens. So the entire native distribution, we sampled 45 different locations and 235 trees that were climbed and measured intensively. And we also looked at climatic gradients across the entire range. And so this article in Forest and River News was um, kind of a a distillation of that. The original article was published in Forest Ecology and Management. It's like 30,000 words. It's dense. It represented four years of hard work. Um, But again, it's pretty dense and, and not very accessible. So we published a kind of a synopsis on Science X, which allows the authors of scientific papers to try to interpret in a thousand words their work for the public. And then this, this new article is basically just a doubling of the number of words. I think it's like 2,000 words, but it's basically trying to tell the story of our range-wide climatic analysis of Redwood.
0: What do you foresee with climate change as the, the future for Redwoods?
1: Well, temperatures are rising, and that's making everything drier. You know, the, the, the drying power of the air increases exponentially with temperature. And when... <laughs> When you have high temperatures, particularly at night, the trees, any tree, doesn't uh, produce new wood. So it turns out that the cell division beneath the bark that creates new wood occurs predominantly at night during the time when the trees have the least water stress because the when the cells initially divide, they fill with water and expand. And then during the day, the cellulose and the lignin are, are laid down in the cell wall that makes it an actual part of the wood. But if the cell wasn't produced at night, there's nowhere to put the carbon, the sugar from photosynthesis into making the new wood. So they end up not producing any new wood. So they have all this photosynthesis going on, but there's nowhere to put it. So the question is, what do they do with that excess carbon? And it's becoming increasingly clear that these trees are actually not carbon limited. At least the redwoods aren't. They have too much. <laughs> and So the question is, what are they doing with it? We don't know. We suspect a lot of it may be going below ground, but we also expect that it might be increasing the durability of the, what little wood they do make because they have the sugar available to make these toxins that make the, the heartwood red. And so we're suspecting that with rising temperatures, there might be less wood produced, but it might become more durable. That's a possibility. Um, we found that the, you know, basically sensitivity to drought is kind of increasing across the redwood range as temperatures are rising. Um, The most drought sensitive forests are those that get the least rainfall and have the least uh, fog. It turns out that the fog that comes in at night is super useful for these trees because it creates opportunities for them to make new wood. Um, So the fog absorption through the foliage particularly is a huge bonus. And of course, as you go further and further south and further from the coast, there's less and less and less fog, which is why redwood is pretty restricted to, to its coastal environment. But there's a huge gradient. I mean, we measured some forests that were in eastern Napa County. Well, not quite all the way to the east, but I think it was like it's like almost 60 kilometers from the ocean. These are little canyons that there's almost no fog. And the redwoods are in there. They're down along the creeks, but then there's chaparral on the slopes on either side. The same thing you can see down in the southern limit in Big Sur, where the redwoods are really restricted to these canyons. But yeah, it's hard times. It's not just redwoods, it's forests globally. When I was writing the article, um, I was reading widely in the literature, and it's just so much evidence is building that suggests that this temperature problem is going to become acute. And so you're going to get these heat waves that are going to lead to periodic, really water stress conditions that lead to top dieback. And there's also just going to be less
0: wood produced. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a kind of a bummer. Yeah. That's what we're I have one last question and you can answer or choose not to, but are you concerned that the concepts of potential alder trees and intentional forests could be used to justify logging that you don't necessarily agree with?
1: Well, you know, I'm not trying to say log or don't log. I'm just trying to say we should provide for the, for the possibility of decent sized trees on the landscape again. And I think there's a whole spectrum of management approaches. On one extreme, again, it's full restoration of primary old growth forest conditions. On the other extreme is plantation forestry. So in between, there's a huge gradient. And so in some parts of the land that are designated as timber production land, that doesn't mean we can't have decent trees. I'd rather see a relatively small number of pets in a working forest than none at all. Mm-hmm. So it just comes down to like what are the what are the objectives for the for the land. It's not there's not a one, there's the, the pet strategy is not just like some prescription that has to be followed. It's just, you have to provide opportunity for trees to attain full stature again, at least some of them. Yeah. You can justify just by anything you want. Um, I, I don't get into that. I'm just trying to speak for the trees here. And the opportunity is ripe for us to change management and tweak it so that we can have the restoration of some decent sized trees in
0: California. Yeah. Yeah. I actually do have one more question, two, a two part question. How many hours do you think you've spent up in trees? Over well, the Bob 10,000? I, I wish yeah. I was spending a lot more time.
1: <laughs> I used to, I back in the heyday, I'm 55 now. Back in the heyday, I was climbing five days a week. I don't know. It's many, many, many thousands.
0: Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, find- you know,
1: a lot of these trees, in the early days, when we were developing the allometry, tree, the, the equations that allow you to predict things like how many leaves does a tree have, how much biomass does it have, we had to map every branch on some of these trees. So we had a tree up in Prairie Creek that it took us 26 people days to map all the branches on it. Wow. And at one point, we had three teams of two climbers in the tree working 10-hour days. It was brutal. But then... We came back five years later and did it again because we had to see how much the tree grew. So think about that, just ridiculous amounts of time. where was a tree, you, know, you saw that National Geographic um, with the snow tree on the front. The, it's it's the on ground. my wall right next yeah, to my. That, yeah, the president tree, 3,300 years old. Yeah. it took us 32 people days in to map every branch on that tree. Wow,
0: and yeah. didn't you say it, how many billion needles? That thing has like 2 billion. Wow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, man. A lot of that
1: painstaking work was, I mean, I did it. I'm glad I did it when I when I was younger because it's so brutal. I mean, you're up in the tree all day long measuring things. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the core sampling because you have to collect these thin cores of wood at different heights to figure out how thick is the bark, how thick is the sapwood, and also how dense is the wood. And then you pull the core out and you can count the annual rings, but you can also measure them. And you can measure them to the nearest millionth of a meter, and you can get the annual increment that way. And so, and you can also use those data to figure out how old the tree is. So that's how I know that that tree is thirty three hundred
0: years old.
1: So yeah, it's been an enormous amount of time up there, and more to come.
0: Yeah, these these trees must be like your old friends when you go and climb up one you've been up before.
1: Well, you know what's neat is that
0: our our sampling
1: is. Non destructive. So the trees that we've climbed and intensively measured are still there and available for future consultation. That's the beauty of it. We didn't have to cut any of them down to buck them up and figure out how much they weighed. We did the painstaking work so that we didn't have to do that. But so now we can go into the forest. I've been, my latest project is we're trying to calibrate this um, instrument aboard the International Space Station. It's called the JEDI sensor and it's a It's a full waveform LIDAR instrument. It's sending down these pulses across the Earth's surface. And the goal is to, it's trying to figure out forest biomass at the global level. And what they, they're doing a lot of work in the Redwoods. And of course, Redwoods have the maximum biomass on Earth. So we wanted to calibrate that sensor from the space station. So it pulses these areas. So I have to go into the forest, kind of these random locations and find where it pulsed, which is a long story how we do that. And then measure (laughs) the (laughs) trees. So yeah, it's, it's been intense, but it's, you can go now go into the forest and you know, our iPhones, if you have the latest one, it has a LIDAR scanner on it. Yeah. So you can go in and you can scan the tree without even stretching a tape around it. You can scan it and create a 3d model. And then on the computer, you can figure out what the trunk's diameter is at all the, all the way up as far as you can reach with like, I use a selfie stick to get the phone up and I can get like, you know, eight meters off the ground. So you can get the predictors that you need to figure out the biomass with just by walking around the tree with your iPhone.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, Professor Sillett, thank you so much for taking the time and for all the work you've done over the years. Well, thanks, Chad. It's great to talk to you. You're welcome. Well, thank you for spending the last hour with me, Chad Swimmer, here on the Ecology Hour. And thank you, Dr. Stephen Sillett. If you would like to see a full list of the articles and research papers with links that Dr. Sillett has contributed to, go to Google Scholar Sillett, S-I-L-L-E-T-T. And I am always grateful for the music I've been gifted with for this show from Gene Parsons and George Russell. Keep on strumming. Thank you to KZYX, Listener Power Community Radio for Mendocino County and beyond for supporting this show, and also to Manu Martinez of KCXU San Jose, and to Tanya Horlick of KMUD Garberville for picking this show up and distributing it to you. Thanks also to our intern, Vale Gautier, for their astute editing work. If you would like to link to back episodes of any of the shows that I've made, go to disquietmedia.blue. This show is produced on Audacity Freeware in a small studio by a small team on the unseated stolen land now known as Casper, California. And as always, the views and opinions expressed on this show are only those of myself and my guests and not the staff or management of anybody who might air this show. See you next time.